as we prepare to come before God's Word, let's join together in prayer for ourselves, for our nation and for our world. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, we give you thanks for what we've just read. Lord, we thank you for your Word that encompasses every aspect of our lives. Lord, we are so grateful to you for our salvation. And we are much more grateful, Lord, that in saving us, you don't simply leave us to get on with things as best we can figure out. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us your spirit by which we might read and understand. And Lord, you expect us to go and to be refined by what you have written. Changed, transformed, united, made whole. Lord God, we thank you for the many uses to which we find your word put. And Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we gather together around it. Give us humility, Lord. These are familiar words to many of us. Romans is such a well Let's pray together as we come around God's word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time together and that we can come and celebrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we read your word together, we ask for yet more grace, Lord, that we might have understanding as we read, that our eyes would not be darkened, our hearts not dim. Lord, we pray that you would bless us. And as we leave this place at the end of our service, Lord, we might be shaped and transformed by your word so that we will go and live in light of it this coming week. Lord, we ask all this knowing that you alone are able to achieve it. And so we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a conversation with somebody over the past few weeks, not a Christian person, who was telling me um, in very confident terms what our church should be all about. It's always very interesting to have conversations with people when they know you're a minister, because they generally tend to either fall into one of Uh, three categories. They either don't really want to talk to you very much because they think the conversation is going to get weird and they're not interested in that, so they they just say nothing, or they tend to um, try and apologize for their lack of church going and explain when the last time they were in church was, which is usually quite depressing to hear, uh, or they will tend to then tell you uh, what church ought to be in their understanding. Usually this is reinforced by a number of bad examples of churches that haven't measured up to, uh, to their standard, and that was sort of the case uh, a couple of weeks ago. There were lots of assumptions mixed in about what Christians are, about what church is, about how church actually functions, and it's fascinating to see people with really no understanding on any level whatsoever other than it's the building down the bottom of that street, and I know people go, and I know sort of from television what happens on a Sunday, but that's kind of it. It's as Billy Graham said after he made his return to the UK in the 90s, having been here in, what, the 50s, I think his first visit was, when he came back and said, really, you're starting with a blank canvas. People have no understanding on any level that is helpful to them what what a Christian is, what the church actually is, and this was the case um, in this conversation. God was in there somewhere, but was reduced really merely to a reason why we should help other people. Christians should be kind was the gist of the the conversation, or really more the monologue. 
because Christians believe in God. So, therefore, you should be kind. You should be kind by doing the kind of things that I am going to enumerate for you now. And then they list out the number of things the church ought to be doing because that's what being kind is. And remember, you should be kind because you believe in God. And that should be the main focus of your church. That's how your church should function week by week. Anything that takes away from that, anything that isn't that, is bad, is wrong, and reflects badly on the church. And the implication is on you and also um, on God. It's fascinating to have that kind of conversation. And it's also fascinating to try and sort of walk that tightrope of how much you challenge uh, that kind of way of thinking. Paul has spent 11 chapters outlining why anyone should be a Christian. And he has punctured a number of assumptions about what Christians are, about what men and women are, never mind whether they're Christians or not, where we've come from, what our lives are for, where we're going. And in addressing those issues and sort of puncturing those assumptions, he's been able to lay a foundation to say, this is what a Christian man or woman truly is. And now we're getting in chapter 12 to this point where he shows how this works out in practice. Now, there's been little bits of that all the way through. We found in the first 11 chapters, haven't we, he makes um, statements about um, this is how we ought to see the world. This is what sin is. This is what, um, this is what God is. This is the state of mankind before God. And then he tends to say, therefore, go and do these things. And we found that in chapters 9, 10, and 11, didn't we? He talks about the standing of Jews and Gentiles before God, and he treats the whole issue quite fully. And then at the end, he comes to a therefore. Therefore, you shouldn't look down on one another. You're all part of the same church together. You serve the same God, and and so on. And now, Paul is saying therefore to essentially those first 11 chapters, bearing in mind all that I have said so far about who you are. Therefore, this is how we ought to go and live. He's told us that we are lost and without hope in the world because of sin that always separates us from God and leads us to focus on ourselves. We're told we need a Savior because we're not good enough to overcome this sin. Who is powerful enough to raise themselves from the dead? No one. You need one more powerful, not just than you, but more powerful than death. Paul is overjoyed, therefore, that Jesus, God in the flesh, has come to save us from the sin that corrupts us and that kills us. And in the last few chapters, he's made clear that nothing can stop Christ's transforming work as he saves sinners and draws them in to be his people, his saved, called people. It doesn't matter what your language is, what your culture is, your status in society, nothing. And now he shows us what the, saving of work Jesus, what the saving work of Jesus means in our day-to-day lives. He paints a portrait, if I can put it this way, of a true Christian. And he outlines for us in the first uh, couple of verses that the Christian life is focused on lifting God up daily. So, Let's for a moment lay aside all of the other assumptions that we have, all of the sort of mental baggage that we associate with being a Christian and reduce it right down to its foundational level. Paul's just finished chapter 11, you might remember, with this little 
hymn of praise, this little declaration of his thankfulness to God because of God's goodness, because he saves us, whether we're Gentiles who've you know, walked in darkness all the course, not just of our lives, but of all of our ancestors' lives right back to the very beginning, or whether we're Jews who have been given much light and many blessings, and yet at the crucial moment when Jesus comes, have missed him, have rejected him, and uh, have, uh, have essentially embraced darkness rather than light. Paul says, isn't God amazing that he bothers with either one of these groups of people? in light of all that they've just done, all that they are, these sinful men and women. Therefore, Paul says, present your bodies as, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The reason Paul ends up here isn't just gratitude to God for what God has done for the Jews or for the Gentiles. It is the conclusion of their saving faith. You have been saved. Praise God. Therefore, This is what you now go and do, regardless of where you're from or what you're like. It doesn't matter if you're the kind of person who gets really emotional all the time or the kind of person who's quite cold and analytical and just sees the world in a sort of, you know, in a a sort of, um, not flat, but in a, a regulated kind of way where you're able to just see where you need to go and what you need to do. It doesn't matter if you're the kind of person who can read a passage in Scripture and just immediately identify exactly what it's talking about, or if you're the kind of person that needs to go over it and over it and over it, and eventually you get an inkling which you're not really even sure is entirely right. It doesn't matter. If you are saved, Paul says, if Christ has transformed you, then you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. What Paul is doing is he's identifying the nature of the human life as it is before God. This is what man and woman were made for in the beginning. Now, Paul's drawn that out as he's gone through the whole book of Romans. He's gone back and forth throughout biblical history to to paint this picture. And, And we can't help but see Eden here as Adam and Eve are created to worship God. And yet, one of the very first things they do is the opposite of what God tells them. They weren't singing his praises that we are made aware of in, in Eden. They are simply living out their lives in obedience to God. This is their worship. Everything they do glorifies God, testifies to his goodness and his grace, his majesty, his love. And yet in that moment when they sin, all of that stops and they begin to worship themselves, their own view of things and how they ought to be. That's why the serpent says to them that you can be like God. You can take his place as the center of worship. This is why sin is so terrible. It stops people from focusing on glorifying God and makes them glorify themselves or other people or the created world. Now, we can see this in the world around us all the time, can't we? When people deny the existence of God, they must fill that void with something else. And what we're filling it with at the moment in the world is one of two things. It is the worship of the created world. We're hearing constantly in the news about how we've basically killed our planet. And if we don't do something about it yesterday, then the world is going to end in 10 years' time. We're hearing that refrain a lot. Now, I have nothing wrong with taking care of the world that we've been given by God. This is what God says to Adam and Eve. Take the world, 
steward it, subdue it, control it, bring it all to glorify God. I've got no issue with that. But what we're doing just now is elevating the world, the created order, into this godlike place where we must serve and worship it. Otherwise, what are we all going to do? There have been people that have said genuinely that by far the best thing would actually be if mankind was just wiped out altogether. And then the world could just exist in this happy, blissful equilibrium that it was in before we ever came here. So their thinking leads them. Equally, there are those who would take the opposite view where we're all about man. And you can see that in the media at the moment where the autonomous will of man is lifted up and deified above all else. I saw a a guy doing one of these interviews you see from time to time where they pick a university city and they go around and just ask people and lecturers and students and so on, what do you think about this, that or the other? And the question was uh, specifically to do with um, whether you are able to choose your identity, your gender or whatever it might be. And people were saying, well, if you're four or you're eight or you're 12, it doesn't matter. You should choose everything in your life, whatever it is, at every level. And that is a symptom of a group of people who have abandoned God as the highest thing in life and said, well, there's nothing else around, so it must be me. Every decision I make should be the biggest and the most important thing. Whatever I decide must be reality. You can be like God. You see it in the world all the time. This is what sin does. And yet Paul makes it clear the moment you are transformed by Christ, you are to give glory to him. You are to make your lives exclusively about lifting him up in everything. Notice he doesn't say you're singing. You're gathering together on the Sabbath or the Lord's day or any other day. He says that you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything you do, say and think, everything, all the time. Sounds kind of tiring, doesn't it? (laughs) That we have to sort of regulate everything all the time to glorify God. And yet this is what Paul's saying. We'll go on to uh, how we actually do this in a minute. But Paul says it's your whole life. We live lives are to live lives that are not conformed by the way of thinking of the world, but are transformed by God through his word. As his spirit impresses it upon us. We take in what God says he wants us to be like and what he wants us to do and say and think and so on. And then we pray for the spirit's strength and the perseverance to actually do these things, to to live it out as best we are able, knowing we're going to fail, but when we do, we ask for forgiveness and to start afresh. We test, Paul says, everything against God's will. And then we go and we live in light of that. And this, therefore, helps us to understand that this isn't exhausting in the sense that we've got to figure all this out for ourselves. What we do is we test what is the will of God, and we compare that with our lives, and then we seek to conform the pattern of our lives to that. Now, the way that we do that is, I think, clear from what Paul has said everywhere else in Romans, is that we take that to be God's word. Now, I know that there are plenty folks, and there may be some here this morning, who um, are quite happy with the idea that when we seek to discern God's will, it's just whatever he impresses upon my mind. And there are times in our lives where God does impress things upon us. We're going somewhere, and we feel compelled to go and speak to someone about 
this particular topic and we don't understand why. Or we're not to go somewhere and we don't understand why, but we look back later on and realize God was leading us somewhere else. Or we don't get the job or the, the place at university or whatever else it is that we thought that's where we were going and we recognize afterwards that God has impressed upon us, although we didn't even perhaps realize what is his will. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Because what Paul is talking about is the, the people of God being together. It's the whole context of Romans 9, 10, and 11, leading into 12. You do this together as a people, not individually. And what Paul is talking about here is that we gather, I think, around God's word. And so as I read it and I say, this is what I think this is saying, you sitting next to me are able to say, well, well, this is what I think it's saying. And together we figure out what the answer is. And disagreement is part of that process. That's why Bible study is so useful for us together as Christians. That's why as a church, we make such a big deal about the Bible how we read it throughout our service, why we have a sermon as the sort of high point of the service. Because what we want is to come together as a family around God's Word, and you have God's Word hopefully open in front of you. So as we read and I say, this is what the passage is saying, you can read it and say, Amen. Or hang on a minute, that's not what the passage says at all, and we need to rethink this. We do this together. So that we test what we're saying and thinking and doing according to the standard of God's Word. So that we can then go and be conformed to it. We want to know what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we realize, don't we, as we hear those words, the height of that standard. We recognize that as we read God's Word, we're going to feel a little bit of a sense of trepidation. That God is asking me to a standard, to adhere to a standard way higher than, than the world does, way higher than I first anticipated, way higher than I feel I'll ever be able to achieve, perhaps. And yet, this is what we are to strive towards because what we want is what is truly good, not what the world says is good. Don't be conformed to that. Not what the world says is acceptable. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't be conformed to that. What we want is what is perfect. And so we have in God's Word revealed to us what is perfect. We have God Himself. We want, I think, to get to the point that we are able to go through this life recognizing that everything is brought before God's Word so that we are able to see it the way God intends us to see it. In the book of Job, you find the book begins and ends on a very similar note, for all the vast distance that's covered in that book. You find at the very, the very beginning, Job saying these words. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now we recognize what Job is saying this in response to. He's been given so much, he's been blessed beyond measure, and all of it is torn away from him. The only thing he's left with is his life. That's it his home, his family, his wealth, everything, is, his health, everything is ripped away. And the book begins with this note, and he goes on this great journey up and down all over the place, and then come the end of the book as he questions God, how can you let this happen to me? And God answers him. Eventually, he comes to that place where he says, I'm basically a fool, and I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth and say nothing. 
I have no right to accuse God. And he comes back to this place. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knows what he's doing. I don't have a clue. And I need to see the world the way he sees it. And that's really, really hard. So we come again and again to God's word. And we test everything that we say and we do and we think. So that it might be conformed to what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Christian life is focused on lifting up God, and this is how we do it daily. It's not just about being kind because you believe in God and we have some vague idea that that means you ought to be good and kind and gentle and never say boo to a goose. Whatever else we do, however we conduct ourselves, the foundation of our days every day is that we lift God up by testing who we are at every level with Scripture, which is why it's so important that we do read the Bible. It's why we so, it's so important that we do come together in prayer. It's why this is so important, Sunday by Sunday, and Wednesday nights, and all the other times that we gather together in smaller groups around God's Word. The Christian life is about lifting up God daily. The Christian life is about focusing on lifting up others daily. In verses 3 through to eight, we find Paul then beginning to apply this to how we conduct ourselves in our daily lives outside of just that foundational level of whatever we do lift up God. He says that we want to see ourselves with sober judgment, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but that we see ourselves in accordance with the measure of the faith that God has assigned us. And this is really challenging, isn't it? Because I think we all believe in our heart of hearts that we do see ourselves with sober judgment. Of course, I, I know myself best, and I can, I can tell you things that, about myself that you would shudder to know. I, I see myself as, um, as plainly as anybody does. And yet, the challenge for us from Paul is that that might not actually be true. Because the challenge is not to see yourselves at, you know, the best level that you are able to, the challenge to see is to see ourselves the way God sees us, according to the standard, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul calls this sober judgment. We are employing our faith, he says at the end of verse 3, to be the means by which we see ourselves. It's taking off an old set of glasses the ones of the way of the world that have conditioned us to see ourselves in a certain way. So yes, you might have said an unkind word or done something that you shouldn't have done, but it really genuinely wasn't that bad and the repercussions weren't all that significant. So in a very real way, it doesn't matter. It's fine. What you did benefited more people than it, than it, did, um, than it was detrimental to a relatively small number. So it's fine. At the end of the day, there are extenuating circumstances. You can't be blamed for the way that you reacted in that situation, so it's fine. We do this all the time. It's perfectly natural. That's the way of seeing ourselves according to the world. We relativize always. There are always extenuating circumstances. And yet Paul says that the way we are to see ourselves is in according to the measure of faith that God has assigned us. We are to see ourselves in light of our true worth before God. Now, this does two things. This should help us to see ourselves as significantly worse than we first anticipated in the first hand. 
We should recognize that we are so far below God's standard uh, of speech and thought and life and worship and so on that it really is truly frightening. And the implication of that is that we should strive to grow. We should strive to develop. We recognize we are sinners, in short. It's what Paul's been doing all the way through in Romans, hasn't he? Outlining what a sinner truly is, the desperate state that we were in. But Paul is speaking to Christians. And so we have the flip side of this, that we use our faith to assess our own worth and recognize, I was a sinner, but now I am in Christ. God has redeemed me, and my life wasn't really worth anything before, but now it has been given worth by Jesus. Not that we get to wander around and lord it over other people as just being worthless sinners in stark contrast to the magnificence of me who Jesus has deigned to save. That's not where we're going here. But that we have true worth and value, however much we struggle, however often we fail, however lowly we feel, God has redeemed you. His son came to die for you. What more could he do for you? That's how much the creator of the universe loves you. And so we recognize ourselves as sinners, but ones who have been redeemed by Jesus and given just inestimable worth, worth beyond anything we could ever have dreamt of. You were dead in a ditch, as it were, and now have been seated in a palace. It's unbelievable. And it's why Paul bursts into praise at the end of the last chapter. He just can't believe it. It's so amazing. And so I'm not truly worthless. I have real meaning and value, and it doesn't matter what age or stage of life I find myself. Because there are always ways in which I can live out this faith that will be pleasing and acceptable to God. I don't know how many conversations I've had with people in nursing homes and in care or those who are being cared for at home who have felt so worthless. But more often than not, what they tend to say at the end of it is, I would feel utterly worthless, but I know I can still pray. It doesn't matter where you are or how helpless we might be, there is always something we can do that glorifies God wherever we are, which signifies that we are not worthless, that we are not empty, that we are not purposeless. It's one of the great frustrations of my life that I find myself saying, as I find others saying, that you know, we just try to do so much, there's nothing more I can do for this person or situation, but you know, the, the I suppose we can always pray as if somehow prayer is just sort of, well, I've got nothing better I can do. Prayer is the most we can do. It's the best that we can do. We bring it before the Lord. What what are we thinking when we say that? There is much that we can do because Jesus has redeemed your life and ushers you into the presence of God so that you come before the throne of grace and bring whatever is troubling you before the Lord. It's astonishing worth. The sinful world outside cannot do that. They cannot come into God's presence and bring before Him their praise and their worship and also their concerns and their needs and the needs of the world around them. They can't do it because they have no means of entering into God's presence in the way that we do. Now, that should keep us both feeling so encouraged and also so humble. We are to use sober judgment to assess the worth of our lives. And as we do that, we will recognize our place before God, but we will also recognize our place with other people. 
This is Paul's point in chapters 9, 10, and 11. You don't get to see yourself as a first-class Christian or a second-class Christian. You don't get to see yourself as being better off because Jesus saved you because you were no better than the sinner who's out there. That's not why you were saved. God saved you because he chose to set his love upon you, not because you were so amazing he just couldn't go another day without you. And so we see others with the same sober judgment that we see ourselves, and we recognize the value and the worth of our lives and of theirs. So within the context of the church, we're all serving together. We're all pulling in the same direction, and we're going to disagree, and we're going to have struggles and frustrations and so on, but we never stop seeing each other the way God sees us, with sober judgment, with love. Because isn't it amazing that God saved you? And sometimes we feel that a little bit more passionately than others, don't we? Isn't it amazing that God saved somebody like you? But it's true. It is amazing. And it's amazing he saved me. The Christian life is focusing on lifting up God daily, but also on lifting up others because we recognize we need each other. You are an amazing person created in the image of God, gifted beyond reckoning by Him to be employed for His glory. But you're not so great that you have every gift and ability. You're not so amazing that you are the complete perfect picture. We're not. We all know that, don't we, when we see ourselves with sober judgment. So we need each other to fill in the gaps where you lack and I can supply and vice versa. This is God's uh, reason, one of the reasons for giving marriage in the first place is because of what the husband lacks, the wife supplies, and what the wife lacks, not that that's many things, but what the wife lacks, the husband supplies. That's how church life works. We all pull together. All gifts are not the same. And Paul goes into what some of these gifts are, service and teaching and prophecy and exhortation and, uh, and um, hospitality and so on. And he says, you need all of this stuff together. You you need to to employ the gifts you've got for the good, not just of yourself, but your brothers and sisters, so the whole church grows, so that you all glorify God together. We recognize not all gifts are the same, and we recognize that some gifts seem to be valued by men more than others, but actually they're not. They're all to be employed for the same end. And you might think that your only ability really is in cleaning the church, or pouring the tea and coffee, or you come in and and organize the the toddlers, or the creche, or or whatever it might be, and maybe that is not as significant as some other job, like being a deacon, or a pastor, or something like that, but that's not how it works. We're all gifted differently, and we pull together. And so the resources that we share bless the whole body. And he uses that metaphor briefly here that he uses elsewhere, that we're all members of the one body. We all don't have the same function, but we're all pulling for the same goal. And in the end, we are members not just of the body, but of one another. When you serve, I feel the benefit. When I suffer, you feel that pain. When you experience joy, I share in it. And Paul goes on to say that, that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. That's what it is to lift one another up. In light of who God has made you and who God has made me, regardless of where we came from. So we recognize that we all need to be united together in the body by the same faith. The body is united together so that it functions. We don't 
have the luxury of, of carrying passengers in the church. We all serve in whatever way, whether it's by praying, whether it's by turning up and opening up the building, whether it's by standing up and leading the singing, or whether it's by preaching or whatever it might be. But we recognize we are members of one another. We do this for the blessing of each other so that we all glorify God, which is our foundation. We see ourselves and others with sober judgment, and so we lift up others daily as we lift up God daily. And the Christian life, lastly, is focused on lifting up love daily. This is broken into three categories by Paul, and they're all sort of striped together through the closing section of 9 through to 21 with this great list of ways in which we are to live. And basically, this breaks down into lifting up love towards God daily. We put Him in His right place, So we let him execute judgment where it ought to be done. We don't rush to judge other people because God will deal with that. Better we let him deal with it than rush to judgment over other people. We want to praise him and we want to love what he loves and we want to hate what what he hates, such as evil and, and so on. That we want to also love the people around us within the church. We love one another with brotherly affection. We want to outdo one another with honor. We want to constantly be pouring ourselves into the lives of other people. The way that we saw this past week in in the arrangement that were made for for the funeral. We pull together and we've got all sorts of different gifts, but, but I am blessing you through this gift in a way that I know you will bless me at some other time if you're not doing so today. We outdo one another with honor because we love each other because God first loved us. We're not slothful in our zeal, but we're fervent in our spirit. We serve, and we serve well, because we're serving each other in the name of Christ. And we're patient, and we're kind, and we contribute to the needs of others. We show hospitality where uh, hospitality is required, and so on. So we lift up love towards God, we lift up love towards each other, and we lift up love even towards those who hate us, our enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. We find that we're to repay no one evil for evil. We are to live as far as it depends on us, which implies we can't always do this, as peaceably with others as possible. We don't avenge what people have done towards us, and we don't seek to um, hurt our enemies, but we feed them, and we clothe them, and we give them something to drink. In so doing, we make them aware of how terrible they are being towards us. And when I read this, the the picture of Richard Vermbrand's life came to mind. I don't know if you've ever seen um, or read any of the the, um, details of Richard Vermbrand's life. He was imprisoned in a Romanian jail for being a Christian, for not handing over the location of uh, churches that he knew of who were meeting that the communist government wanted uh, to crush and Um, to imprison, and he was beaten every single day. He was tied up, and his feet were smashed with a a wooden baton every single day until he told them, and he wouldn't, and he wouldn't, and he wouldn't, and he kept going. And he was punished because they would find him praying in his cell, and he wouldn't stop. And every time they caught him praying, they just kept dragging him out and beating him again. And it got to the point where the prison guard was getting to the point of being brokenhearted, and he was almost pleading with Wormbrand to stop. I don't want to have to keep doing this to you. Just please stop. What on earth are you praying for that's so important you're willing to let me break your body every single day? And Richard Wormbrand said, I'm praying for you. 
very difficult for the guard to take that. A number of their guards became Christians as more and more Christians were pulled in uh, and went through that same experience. They wouldn't stop praying. They wouldn't stop worshiping. They wouldn't stop blessing the guards that they had by speaking kindly and gently to them. They constantly embodied Christ and it heaped burning coals on their heads. They couldn't take it anymore. They just couldn't do it. They weren't overcome by evil, but they overcame evil with good. Now, that isn't because they were particularly amazing Christians. None of those Romanian pastors would say that they were anything special. None of them. But they would all say they had a special Savior who carried them through and who empowered them and whose life enabled them to see the kind of life they were supposed to live in light of the transformation that he had brought to bear on their hearts. Isn't God good that he saves sinners? Yes, he is. And what does he want to do with those sinners that he's saved? He wants them to lift him up daily, to lift each other up daily, and to lift up love daily. You're going to hear all sorts of stuff about what our church ought to be doing, how we ought to be, and what we ought not to do. But whatever it is, we filter it all through God's Word. We test and test and test what is good and acceptable and perfect. We lift up the one who made us and called us. We lift up those children that he has saved and made his own. And we lift up the love that he has put in the very heart of who we are so that others see the Christ who saved us and be saved themselves. Let's pray together that we would be such a people this week. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your goodness. We give you thanks, Lord, for your love. You didn't need to save us. Lord, we certainly didn't deserve it. And yet, Lord, you were pleased to send your Son, your only Son, your beloved Son, one that you have known from eternity past perfectly, loved completely. And Lord, you were willing for him to have, Lord, his whole life wrecked and ruined by his own creation, to have sinful men and women lay their hands on him, the creator of the universe, and nail him to a cross. Lord God, we thank you that even in that terrible act of sin, you were able to bring about the greatest act of grace and mercy of all time. And Lord, in being saved this morning, we want to give you thanks if we have trusted Christ for our salvation. Lord, we ask that you would fill our eyes with the wonder of our salvation every day. Lord, that we might lift you up for it. Lord, that we might serve one another and that we might love as completely as we can the world around us. Lord God, if we are not Christians this morning, if we don't know if we are, we pray that you would give us an understanding of these things that we've talked about. Lord, help us to see and to appreciate just what sin and salvation truly are. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit and through your Word, you might move powerfully, whether it be through those here gathered this morning in the building or at home, or others who will perhaps hear or watch this in weeks and months or years to come. Lord God, we pray that you might bring men and women into your family through Christ's blood, that they might lift you up, lift up each other, and love. And Lord God, we ask it all in our Savior's perfect name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to pour out our praise and thanksgiving to God as we finish our time of worship this morning. We're going to stand and be led in our closing hymn, Blessed Assurance Jesus Is. 
mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Let's stand together and glory in the God of our salvation.